I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm really happy to welcome you to our True Tales Live Zoom show on September 28th, 2021. We're back from our summer hiatus, and really great. It's great to see you all. Thank you to those watching, listening, and especially to those here in our live online audience. Hi, folks. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal, cultural diversity, and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect for each other. We are so happy to be here with you, even on Zoom. We do have a few suggestions for making the most of this online format. We believe that storytelling is really an exchange between tellers and listeners. And so we've come up with these ways that you can help with that. First, there's the chat box that you can express your reactions um, for us to save and share with the tellers later. Also put in questions you have for our tellers because after all the stories, there's gonna be a Q&A session. And you can have big reactions so like if someone says something funny, throw your hands up, you know, go for it. If you're shocked, oh, so just go ahead and let the tellers know that people are here with them. It really feels good. Tonight's show does not have a specific theme, although you might want to think and come up with a theme and after the fact that might connect the stories. That's always fun. And we're going to hear the stories tonight from Judith Heineman. Chris Newcomb, and Vicki Uditz. We're thrilled to have them. And I'm now gonna ask you to join me in welcoming our MC, Pat Spaulding, who will introduce each teller to you. Welcome, Pat. Thank you, Amy. First up, we have Judith Heinemann, who resides mostly in Westchester, New York. She is an international award-winning storyteller, workshop leader, recording artist, producer, and actor who received an Arts Westchester grant to develop and perform her one-woman program, Feats of Courage, about three women Holocaust survivors whom she knew personally. For 22 years, Judith lived in Chicago, where she was an Illinois Humanities Rhodes Scholar and arts educator who introduced celebration. Some of you may have heard stories on that. It's a worldwide network of storytelling. And she introduced it to the city of Chicago. Judith is a Chicago moth winner. She's told stories in China, Japan, Ireland, England, and throughout the United States. That's very ambitious, Judith. Tonight, she'll tell us a story that begins at a summer sleepaway camp in the Catskills where she met her namesake, friend at age 12. Her story's title <laughs> is Drunk on Chocolate. All right, Judith, take it away. Thank you, thank you very much. <clears throat> Have you ever gotten drunk in front of your children? No, don't answer that. When I was 12, I went to a summer sleepaway camp in the Catskills and met a namesake, another Judy. And the first day of camp, we took a dislike to each other. 
Judy was a trickster and sometimes she was mean to me, but it didn't daunt me because I came back the next year. And miraculously, the first day of camp of the next summer, Judy and I became the best of friends and we still are today. I think what endeared me so much to her is that she is probably the only other person I know who loves chocolate even more than I do. She actually believed that if you ate an entire pound of M&M candies, you would only gain one pound. Well, there is 2,226 calories in a pound of M&Ms. Now, that is the total caloric intake, if you're eating healthy, for two days for a person my size. On visiting day, her parents would bring up contraband, Entenmann's blackout cake, chocolate crumbs delicately shielding the pudding layers, and we would put it in a locker under the bed. We weren't supposed to have food in the bunk, and then at midnight, we would take it out and eat this chocolate cake. Well, we had eight weeks to make mischief, get into trouble, and lead each other astray. At this summer camp, there were two very important events on the last two nights, and we were told to bring something very pretty to wear for them. The penultimate night was the prom, where we could slow dance with all the boys whom we had flirted with all summer. And I can remember I was wearing a lemon yellow chiffon dress with yellow satin around the sleeves, satin buttons, a yellow satin tie at my waist, and it flared out. Judy and I managed to behave ourselves at the prom. But the next night, which would be the last night of camp, was the banquet, where they would probably feed us the best meal of the summer and give out awards. But that was also the last afternoon Judy and I would spend together for almost an entire year. She lived in Long Island and I lived in the Bronx. Maybe once a year we would take the Long Island Railroad and we would see each other, but it wasn't often. This afternoon, we craved chocolate ice cream and we decided we would sneak out of camp there was a little path behind our bunk in the woods where it hooked up to a little dirt road and not too far down that dirt road was Rosie's candy store. So we got to Rosie's undetected and we put our few coins on her counter and she gave us a chocolate creamy ice cream mellow roll. This was a circular ice cream that had white paper with perforations and you peeled it off. Normally, we would lit into these ice cream cones and we would just lick them and lick them, but we savored them. We only licked them a little because we wanted the triumph of bringing it back into our bunk undetected and thumbing our nose at the counselors and eating it in the bunk. Well, we managed to get all the way back to camp undetected. We had one leg one foot on the stair, reaching for the screen door when we heard, Judy, Judy. It was Nat, 
the nasty little head counselor. And he said, girls, what have you done? You've really done it this time. You've broken the rules. You know that wasn't safe. And throw those ice creams in the garbage. And he pointed. But 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 we we didn't finish it. And we and we started licking and licking and licking and licking them as fast as we could. But he pointed to the garbage, and there was more than half left. But we dropped them in, and then we went. Oh, but he said, "Wait a second, girls, and." You are being punished. You are banned from the banquet tonight and you will remain in your bunk until the buses come tomorrow to take you back to the city. Go. And we went inside. But we weren't too crestfallen. We looked at each other and we had the same idea. They couldn't not serve us dinner. They weren't going to starve us. What would our parents say? So we realized that our counselors would have to go up to the mess hall and carry trays to us and serve us in the bunk like princesses. So we got all dressed up again and we put on our prom dresses and we took our foot lockers that were packed by the foot of our bunks, our little army cots and put it between us. We put towels on the foot lockers and we just kind of waited. Well, the counselors, must have taken pity on us because they came back in the afternoon to see how we were doing, if we were sulking and sad. And when they saw how much fun we were having, because there wasn't much to set us off, we were giggling and having so much fun. They said, girls, girls, you will go to the banquet right now. And so we were reluctantly lowering our eyes and did everything we could to prevent ourselves from bursting out laughing. Well, we outgrew camp. And we went to colleges in different states. We got married and had children. Judy moved back to Long Island and I was living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan when we decided to have a reunion. Her son was nine, mine was eight, her daughter was seven. And I was to drive out to her house in Roslyn, Long Island and we would take her car and have dinner at Friendly's. The reason we were gonna have dinner at Friendly's is because with your dinner, it served an ice cream sundae for 99 cents, a hot fudge sundae. So we gave the waitress our order and we said, make sure when you bring these hot fudge sundaes, I really prefer chocolate syrup, but they didn't have any. We want chocolate ice cream and have a heavy hand with chocolate fudge. Oh, and by the way, the children would really like to have their hot fudge in a cup and fill it to the brim. In truth, they did not like chocolate. So she left them on the table. And at the beginning, Judy and I are eating very politely, a little ice cream, a little fudge, a little ice cream, a little fudge. This was ridiculous. We just started shoveling in the fudge. When we finished our Sundays, we picked up those cups filled with this smoky, warm, delicious, hot fudge and started spooning it and then going faster and faster and faster until literally we were having the effects of alcohol. There is a chemical in chocolate called phenylethylamine. It is a serotonin, a mood enhancer. That's why we eat it when we're depressed or give it to lovers. It's like shooting in 150 proof into your veins and I was drunk on chocolate. The tears were coming out of my eyes. I was hysterical, I was hiccuping, I was laughing, I was smearing the fudge all over my face. Judy and I just were completely incoherent and our children are getting worried. And my son is poking me. 
in the ribs saying, Ma, 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 you're embarrassing us. Everybody is looking at us. I didn't know if it was true. I was too far gone to notice. And I knew I had to collect myself. The children was, were much better behaved than the adults. In this friendlies, there was a kitchen in the middle of the restaurant with a low swinging door. And I knew I had to get up and try to stop hiccuping and laughing and just shoveling in the rest of the fudge. When I righted myself and stood up, but blinded by this hysteria with this chocolate, I pushed open the door that I thought was the exit and I'm in the middle of the kitchen. And my son is pulling my coat and screaming, Ma, Ma, now you really did it. You are so embarrassing. Everybody is looking at us. So like blind man's bluff, they twirled me around and pushed me out the door. We sat in Judy's car for a good 20 minutes before we could regain our composure. The children, if they could have melted into the car door, they would have. And we kept assuring them, no, no, your parents, between hiccups and between giggles and between tears. No, really, as we're listing over, your parents are okay, really. They were not convinced. I tell that story again and again. And I just saw Judy not too long ago where we sat on a bench and had chocolate ice cream. And oh, oh, how I wish I had a spoon and a cup of smoky hot chocolate fudge right now. Mmm, chocolate. <laughs> oh my, that was pretty wonderful, Judith. <laughs> I think all of us <laughs> are just like craving chocolate right now. And um, I'm really glad to report that I do have a little bit of chocolate cake in my refrigerator, but disappointed that I don't have any ice cream to go with it. Thank you for that delicious story. Next up, we have Chris Newcomb. He's from Gorin, Maine, and he's an actor, author, storyteller, and artist who recently retired after 30 years of teaching gifted and talented students K through eight. He also operates an art studio where he makes steel sculptures. I've seen some of them too, they're really cool. Stories are what make our lives, says Chris. They bring form and meaning to an otherwise chaotic jumble of experiences. Chris is always pleased to share stories that entertain, yet hopes they also challenge us to think and open our minds to new possibilities. We're all familiar with the instruction, think outside of the box. And most of us, I think, would agree that that's a good thing. But I am curious to find out tonight what Chris has in mind in his story titled, Under the Table. Chris, come on up. All right. Nice to see everybody. Um, yeah, I taught gifted and talented kids in, in uh, throughout the state of Maine, but I was first in Falmouth for 12 years. And uh, that's just outside of Portland. And after about eight years, uh, I, my whole program was built on creativity. And it was really built on what ifs and all kinds of asking questions, questioning everything. And uh, there were a lot of people that questioned my program and they wondered if I was over identifying because I didn't just identify kids by intellectual ability. I actually threw in the creativity component and motivation. And there are a lot of times that I would even wonder, have I gone overboard? Have I identified too many kids? And uh, so this was a particular day. This was uh, the fall around 1999 or so. 
And I had uh, was starting my first time with the fourth grade students coming into my classroom. So it was a separate classroom. They come in for an hour and a half, usually three times a week. And uh, so it was their first time in. And in my classroom, I had I had all kinds of weird posters on the wall, pictures of Einstein. I had you know, just the number 42. If you know Douglas Adams, they would find out what that meant. Um, you know, always look for the second right answer, um, you know, things like that. Uh, and then I had piles and piles. I mean, about a third of my classroom was nothing but boxes and piles of toys and junk and broken machines and all kinds of things. Because we did inventions. We did Rube Goldberg machines. We just were constantly building, creating and designing things. So I was still a little nervous. You know, I was having these kids in and part of it is I'm, I'm getting a chance to see them and see, you know, have I gone overboard? Have I really you know, done. It. And and so one of that particular, you're going to hear about a few of the kids. One particular story I'm going to tell you about is about Allison and uh, the other students in a book I'm writing, you'd get much more about them. But tonight is really going to focus on Allison. So as I say, they come into my classroom and they all immediately just start looking around at everything. And they, they some of them have maybe been in my classroom, but they've, they've heard about it. And it's like this very special, weird place. And so I let them go around for about five minutes. I just let them wander around the room and they find things and they play with things and puzzles and they're drawing on the board and whatever. So finally, I asked them to sit down at this big round table. And I said, you know, what I'd like you to do is I want you to take about five minutes, maybe seven minutes and go around the room and find something in the room, a couple, one or two things that you can then share with us something about yourself to tell us something about who you are. So the kids go around and they're playing with Legos or they're doing this and piles of things and they're doing whatever they're doing. So after about five, seven minutes or so, I call them back. And uh, so I asked who, who would like to share. And so, um, so Samuel gets up and Samuel has this ball of clay and it's, it just looks like a pile of mud. He's taking all his colored clays mixed together. It's just a pile of mud. And he goes on about how this is the planet Glypsos and that, that the people on the the people who live on Glypsos, they have uh, they've got such a wonderful life, but they don't want anybody coming in from outside. So they've created this poisonous gas that circles their planet. So it makes it look ugly. And if anybody came, they'd be poisoned. So now they're safe. And he says, I love sci-fi. I love writing sci-fi, like make movies about sci-fi and blah, blah, blah. So that was great. And then uh, you know, Gemma gets up and she she holds up a calculator she's found. She says, you know, I love math. And I really, I'm so excited because this year I can go to the math contest and I'm going to win a trophy at the math contest. And then, uh, yeah, Chambers gets up and he's, he's got, uh, he just has a, a wooden ball and a spoon. And he says, you know, this is a wooden ball and a spoon. He says, but what if, what if this was a planet and this was a rocket ship going to it? Or what if this was a satellite and this was an antenna? Or what if this was one of those games where you, you toss things and it just goes on. What if, what if, what if, what if? And he says, you know, I love to think and I love to play with ideas. And so that's a little bit about me. So we're going around all those kind of things. It's really fun. And then I noticed that Allison is actually gotten herself under a table in the back of the room with a bunch of the stuff. And so everybody's sharing all their things. And finally, it's, it's you know, Allison's turn. And so uh, I said, Allison, are you, are, you, are you okay? Are you ready? And she says, she just sits there for a while. She's very quiet. And the kids look at me and wonder what's going on. I said, eh, you know, just wait. And finally, out she comes. And she comes out and she's found this blue fabric and she's got it draped around her neck and she just flies and dances through the room. And she says, blue, 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 I am blue. 
I'm as blue as the sky. I'm as blue as the ocean. I'm as blue as a memory. And she gets down on her knees and she does this little dance with the, the blue. And then she says something, I can't remember what it is to the kids. And up she goes and swirls around the room and then back under the table, you know. And, and Allison was one of those kids that I was really wondering, was this the person that should be in this class or not? Because they they definitely had the intellectual ability, but I, there's some other questions. And I, I had seen some things about her that made me think, but this was really great to see. Well, anyway, a little later on, maybe a couple of weeks later, we're doing some math. And uh, I have a tendency to ask kids, you know, I, I, in this particular thing, I just said, look, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a multiplication or addition or subtraction. And I'm not going to ask, I don't care what the right answer is. What I want you to do is think about what you're thinking about. In other words, what are you doing to solve the problem? What's going on in your mind? That's all I care about. So I'd say something like, you know, five times four, and they'd immediately, and they're all screaming. I said, no, remember, it doesn't matter. The answer is not important. I know you're smart. I know you know the answers. What I want to know is what's going on inside your mind or in your body? What's, what's helping you? So finally, you know, I asked something, and one of them says, oh, I see patterns. I see patterns. I see. So let's say, let's say it was four plus seven, and I see, well, seven is made up of four and three, so four and four is eight, and you add three to that, and you get 11. And, you know, so go on and talk about patterns and somebody else says, oh, I see uh, like a like a what do you call this? The cards, you know, the flashcards. And I see the numbers and adding them up to and stuff. So on and on they go different kinds of ways of doing it. Well, now Anna, again, has waited. And it's as I would learn from Anna, she always waited like to be the last. And it's not that she didn't care, but she always listened intently to everyone else, but just like to be the last one to share. So she's again back in the back of the room under the table and. So Anna, and she comes up, and everybody else is just shared from their seat, but seat, but not Anna. She comes right to the front of the room. I mean, Allison. She comes right to the front of the room, and she stands there, and she goes, "Well, you know." And I think I'd asked her the question was, "What's eight? Uh, eight plus seven? And she says, "Well, you know, I see number lines. First of all, I see a number line that's horizontal. It goes out into infinity this way, and then there's another number line that goes down this way to infinity." And what's really strange is there's all these different colored cords that are connecting the numbers. Like there's threads almost. There's orange and there's blue connecting the seven and the eight. And there's the, and she on and on she goes about this elaborate thing that she sees in her mind. And then she says, you know, eight and seven, they're special numbers. I mean, eight is two circles. It's also the symbol for infinity. Um, and seven, seven's a prime number. And seven's made up of two and five and five's magical, five fingers, five toes and five, ten, and on and on. And she just goes on and on about this elaborate world of mathematics in her mind. And I realized very quickly that, number one, I'm never going to be able to teach this student and probably most of the other students in a rote manner. Um, not when they come with that kind of mind and that kind of creativity. And so what I really would concentrate on then is creating a safe place for them, this world where they could come and they could be themselves. And one of the things that was interesting about Allison was that in her regular classroom, she sat in the back of the room and just sat there behind her desk and she read all day long. She barely listened to anything going on because she knew everything that was going on. She was a smart kid. And so her teacher was a great teacher, don't get me wrong, her teacher, but they overwhelmed her with a lot of special ed kids. So that's where her attention went. And so for Anna to be able to be in my classroom in a safe place where she could come and be herself or Allison, be herself. And for all these kids to come where they could be themselves and they could just, you know, uh, have a safe place to be. It was great. 
And one of the great things that happened was, number one, I realized, yep, I was convinced these are the right kids. And number two, as much as I was creating a safe place for them, I found out after I've retired that they created a safe place for me. Thanks. Ah, thank you, Chris. Uh, that was really beautiful. <laughs> I, I loved all the, um, the colors and actions of the way kids, uh, how you got kids to think outside of the box um, and under the table. Um, yeah, I, I wondered if that Allison had that thing. I don't know the name of it, but it's like, uh, you see colors, like a number has a certain color assigned and um, there's musical sounds come out as colors, which is a, a whole different way of thinking. And some people have this thing, um, which I wish I could remember the name of it, but I'm losing names. Thank you. Next up, we have Vicki Uditz from Burbank, California. She's performed at theaters and festivals all over the country, including the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and the Aspen Laugh Festival, L-A-F-F. -F. She performs frequently at Moth Story Slams. Her so story singing, whoops, sorry, let me try that again. Her story swing dancing, has aired on the Moth Radio Hour. Vicki has always considered herself to be a rule follower. You don't look like one, Vicki. <laughs> Someone who defers to authority. But, she tells us, sometimes the most ordinary banal experience can become fraught with meaning. Let's find out more in her story, Breakout. Night after night. I wake up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. My kid calls me on the phone. They say, Mom, you should get tested. Remember that time we were on that camping trip? Remember that time there was that little boy in the tent next to ours? He woke up in the middle of the night, heard you snoring, thought you were a bear. Yes, that was hilarious, Mom. You should get tested. You could have sleep apnea and die. Okay, so I make the appointment. You know, as the day approaches, I find myself looking forward to it. I mean, I haven't gone anywhere during this pandemic. It'll be kind of like a little vacay. So I'm driving around looking for the address. Oh, a tall, dark office building. The place looks abandoned. I pull into the parking garage, one car. I take the elevator up to the third floor, a long, vacant hallway. No signs for businesses on the doors. At the very end of the hall, number 342, it says the sleep center in teeny tiny letters. I push open the door. One man sits in a swivel chair, his back to me. He is facing a console of video screens. And I think of that horror movie cabin in the woods where the techs monitor their victims on video screens before sending zombies out to kill them. The man spins around, springs to his feet. He's so short. He's got iron gray hair and he's wearing a sweatshirt and jeans and a mask as am I wearing a mask because of the virus. He says, I'm Paul, paperwork. I reach into my tote bag, I hand him my forms. Let's get started. You get right to it, I say. I used to be in the military. I follow Paul along a wide hallway and I see we're the only two people in the place. There aren't any other techs. There aren't any other patients. There are doors open along this hallway and I see identical rooms. Each room has a humongous bed, 
a flat screen TV, and on every television is playing the same episode of the old TV show, Gomer Pyle. I say, boy, it's a long time since I've seen that show. We set all the televisions to the station that plays Gomer Pyle, Green Acres, Gilligan's Island, why? Patients find the show soothing, but all those actors are dead. No one thinks that, here you go. And here's my room, same as the others, the bed, the TV, Gomer pile. Next to my bed, there's a cart with racks of wires and gadgets. Have a seat, says Paul. I put my bag down on the nightstand and I sit down on the edge of the bed. Paul asks me to remove my mask. He puts on latex gloves and he puts this white goop on my face and on my scalp. And then he puts on suction cups and electrodes. He puts a strap around my chest, wires around my ankles, a clip on my finger and the whole time. He rattles off medical terms that have to do with breathing, heart rate, brain waves. Why'd you get into this line of work, Paul? The money. And you don't mind working nights? Not at all. I don't like people. Now, if you gasp for air nine times, I come in with a CPAP. If you need to use the restroom, press the white button on the bedside table, I come in. Disconnect the wires. He stands at the door. He turns off the television. He says, lights out. He turns out the light, he goes out. I lie back. Oh, so uncomfortable, all these wires and gadgets. The clip on my finger glows red. I can see a teeny tiny light up near the ceiling. Teeny tiny green light flashing, that must be the camera. Paul is watching me. I think I have to go to the bathroom. Oh, I don't want to press that white button for Paul, make him come and disconnect everything I fidget. My skin crawls, my feet tingle. I check the time on my phone every 15 minutes. I, can, I think I can feel every suction cup on my head. Are they pulsing? What kind of information is Paul gathering as he reads my brainwaves? What kind of person takes a job like this anyway? Control freak? Fire? Or worse? When Paul said he didn't like people, what did he mean by that? When he said he was in the military, what did he do? Kill people? What has he really said all those televisions to Gomer Pyle? Is he sitting there at the console watching me as Jim Neighbors laughs in the background? Are there dials on these electrodes? Can Paul crank up the current coursing through my body? Even a tiny jolt of electricity can be fatal. Is Paul going to throw my body in the building incinerator? Is he going to have somebody push my car up a cliff to throw the cops off the track? I'm just going to press the white button for Paul. A mumble, some lame excuse, and get the hell heck out of here. I'm going to do it. Just any second. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to press that button another minute, maybe another couple seconds. I will. I promise. I will. What is stopping me? What? I know what it is. My entire life, I have followed the rules. I have deferred to authority. My first job, I was a cashier in a diner, also in charge of takeout. And one day, there were two people waiting for their orders. A woman for a sandwich and a man for toast. And the woman's sandwich came and she took it away to her office in the building next door. The man's toast never came. And finally, my boss, Tina, 4'11 in heels, stormed out of the kitchen and she said, Vicky, the toast was in with a sandwich. Go get that toast. I did it. I did that. I ran after toast. Can Paul see my tears? I started awake. I pressed the white button for Paul. And moments later, there he is at the door. He turns on the light. I say, I'm done. I have enough information to make the assessment. What? What time is it? 4.39 a.m. Oh, I thought it was only Paul. 
do I have sleep apnea? Did I come in with a CPAP? No. Well then, he disconnects the wires. I get in my car, I drive home. I go into my kitchen, I sit down at the kitchen table and I think, I don't have sleep apnea. And for the first time in my life, I press the escape button. I close my eyes, put my head down on the kitchen table and I sleep for 12 hours straight. <laughs> oh my, that was way too real. I, I went um, on one of those things because I have an insomnia problem too. And everything you describe, all the little, um, I don't know how they figure we could sleep with that, but apparently you do because I, I managed to get in five hours, they said. Same thing. I didn't feel like I'd slept at all. Anyway, it was a woman, not Paul. Thank goodness. She wasn't that creepy. But the whole experience in general is creepy. Um, thank you for taking us there. <laughs> These are some great stories. Um, now I think we've got a little bit of chat time. Is that correct, Amy? Yes, we do. So um, I've collected a few questions, but keep putting them into the chat. And um, we have actually quite a bit of time here. So we can really ask these folks some questions. Um, how about we start with Chris? We want to know your book title and when it's coming out and how we can get it. Ah. And, and how we can, you know, do you have a website? Give us that stuff so we can follow the progress. All right. Well, the book is called Standing on Tables. And uh, the idea is I'm going to have each chapter will have something to do with tables as Anna is or Allison is under the table and the kids. Um, and it's how I got my job actually was standing on a table at a conference that was uh, they'd given us a there are 300 some odd people in the room and this the, the keynote speaker had asked us to solve this little problem. And I thought to myself, I get the point, but this is going to take with 350 people is going to take us like an hour. So I jumped up on the table. It was a nonverbal thing. And anyway, so two years later. Uh, I had, uh, I was looking for a job teaching and I got a call from Falmouth and it was a woman who said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm leaving my job. I'm going to the middle school and I can't, I was, saw you stand on that table and I can't think of anybody else that I'd want to have teach my kids. So that's what got me down to Falmouth and got me that job, which was wonderful. So the whole, the whole book is all about that. And, uh, I'm just writing it right now. So I don't know when that will, you know, come to pass, but I've probably got about 10 chapters done and I'm just keep writing and I've got some readers I'm sending it to. <clears throat> so, uh, so there's no website for that or anything yet. It's just, you know, I do have a website for my art, um, which is, I'll put that in the, the chat. Um, and, uh, what else? I guess that's it. So actually, can you say it as well for people listening sure. and watching later? Um, it's just www.chrisnukumart.com. Uh, um, Chris, I have also something that um, I wanted to mention because I've I've lost I've it. Do that. I've, oh, I'm trying to figure out. Well, there you are. How oh, good? Okay, this is Pat with a question. Yeah. Um, I have watched your um, "Thank You for Thinking" on YouTube a few times, oh, yeah. which is pretty interesting. You might put in a link or info about how people can uh oh yeah find, yeah find you on that why is my i keep losing this don't know it's weird Maybe it's um good. yeah i'll put that in i have to go to youtube and get that link and, and bring it back but i'll do that okay. um, but yeah it's just called thanks for thinking with chris newcomb so um it's a lot of short stories that are you know just to get there designed to get you to think so it's pretty fun 
let me ask you uh, one. There's another question here while you're unmuted. Why don't we ask you this one too? There was a question, how, how did the kid, what, you know, you said the kids made a safe place for you. Yeah. And how, how did that happen? Or could you say a little more about that? Well, you know, it's interesting because in, in the writing of this, this book, one of the things that I've read about writing memoirs is that, um, you know, like any other story, the main character, there's going to be an arc to the main character. So there should be change. And so you're not going to write this story and just be, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to write ahead of time. I'm going to find out basically in the writing what I was doing all those years. And one of the things that's really surprised me was that as much as I thought I was creating a safe place for the kids, I was creating a safe place for me and they were creating a safe place. And in many ways, for those 30 years, they were my tribe because those are the kids. I mean, that's where I spent my time and creating a space for them. And we just played with ideas. And it was it was just a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And I got away with murder. I just I did. I, I there's so many weird things that I was able to do that I don't think a regular teacher would normally get away with them. But because I was teaching creativity and doing things outside of the, you know, the the box, I always thought my job was to, you know, sort of challenge what school and schooling was all about. And so uh, I had a great time and the kids had a great time too. So that's, you know. And let's ask a few questions of Vicki. A number of, of them have come in. First of all, Here's a question. Um, have you had any other escape button moments? You know, did this one inspire you to others? Are you, have you done more of that since then? I'd like to say I have, but <laughs> um, I'm not too good with that. I really don't. I'm, it's still really a struggle for me. Uh, but uh, I, I would like to think at least I, you know, stick up for myself once in a while. <laughs> Well, you should you should have more so we can hear the stories. You want to track your progress, right? Carrie says yes. Um, okay, then Vicky, if you were to rate this story on the creepy scale from one to ten, what would it be? Um, I think I don't have a lot of creepy stories. I have two of them, and this is one of them. And I I think this was scarier because there we we were just. You know, we were totally alone there. And he was a very, very strange guy. And nothing really ever, he never really did anything to to dispel that weirdness. You know, he was always weird. Whereas I have another story where I took this very strange tour in a museum and the guy, it was just the two of us, the guy locked us in and it was kind of weird. But by the end of it, we actually had a conversation and kind of got to know each other. And I saw that my discomfort was misplaced. But here I never did. I think this guy was really weird. <laughs> well, at least you got out alive. <laughs> Get out. Okay. Um, yes. And Pat points out that this was a great Halloween tale. Maybe we should have had you in October. <laughs> but we're glad we had you tonight. Okay. I'm going to have Judith answer a few here. Um, first off, Nina wants to know what an Entenmann's blackout cake is and do they have it in Chicago? She wants to know. Um, I'm not sure. The original cake was a company on Long Island called Ebinger's and Ebinger's did the blackout cake. And what it is, it really is, it's chocolate pudding, it's layers of chocolate mousse, it's chocolate cake, chocolate crumbs. And then Ebinger's went out of business and Entenmann took it over. 
And I did go on their website and it still exists. So I am not sure where you can get it. I know they will mail it to you for a fortune, but um, uh, it, it still exists somewhere out there. Uh, they used to have it in regular supermarkets. So, um, but I have never forgotten the high I have gotten from that cake. It's just unbelievable. Great. Um, and I got to know, does Friendly's still exist? Is it, I, I grew up near Friendly's. We went all the time, but then I moved up to New Hampshire and I never saw them again. I think it's not in New Hampshire. I, I think they just recently went out of business. There was one near us and it was there a couple of years ago, but I am not sure. I don't think they might exist. Okay. <laughs> so about your friend, um, Someone would like to know why, why, what it was it about your connection that it's lasted this so long? Well, I, long. well, I have to say I'm a collector. And very often, if you're in my life, uh, I don't usually let you go. But there is a special chemistry between uh, Judy and me. We just let, it's, you know, there are certain people in your life, you don't have to say anything. You just look at them and you just laugh and laugh and laugh. And we, there was something really charming. We grew up together and we did visit each other and, and our initials, it's her name was Judith Hornstein. I'm Judith Heineman. And when I would sleep over her house, her mother used to have to call us by our full names because they couldn't say Judy H because we both were. And we both married men with last names that begin with an S. So our initials are still the same. But in any case, she has a fabulous personality. She's a very interesting person, very clever. And um, I don't know, it's just really good chemistry. And I'm grateful. I told her about this tonight, but she's babysitting a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And I don't know that she can actually tune in, but uh, we do see each other um, whenever we can, wherever in the world we live, we always try to reconnect. So I'm sure you have friends like that. I have friends from um, a month old and five years old. So, um, and all of you will remain in my life too. <laughs> That's lovely. Do your kids get along? Your, you know, your kids with her kids? Well, they don't really see each other anymore. Um, their lives have really diverged. Um, you know, we used to have them on play dates together when they were babies, you know, they would run around together, but um, they uh, just haven't really been in the same states or the same circles. Um, but I do visit her children when she comes to New York. She lives in Florida most of the time, but she does live in New York part-time. And if I can, uh, without COVID, um, those children are very dear to me as well. And lots of people are ask, answering my friendly. The friendly turned into a funeral parlor. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there are still some friendlies around, but not many of them, I guess. They've dwindled. So. Uh huh. Uh huh. So you all know. So I have a question that I'm gonna posed to, to each of you or to any of you maybe, and that is how is storytelling different for the tellers on Zoom versus back in the day when we were all in the same space? So if any, like give, give me a wave if you have a thought and want to describe the difference here. Vicki, you up for it? She's nodding, go for it. Yeah. Um... I, I, it is different. 
I, I had a lot of trouble with it at first because I do like to look at people, really look, you know, and look around at the audience instead of at that little green dot. Um, but what I what I have really liked about it, not so much the story I told tonight, but there's some very quiet stories that I have, you know, that have maybe there's some humor, but they're they're on the serious side. And there's been something very wonderful about having the intimacy of a Zoom show to share some of those stories. So um, took took some adjustment, but um, I, I really like it. I like both. I hope that we keep both as we go forward. Lovely, thanks. Um, uh, Judith? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it was a little awkward for me, you know, I'm a techno dinosaur. And, um, but uh, what I like in the beginning, I used to feel that I had to give a performance that was standing up the way I would do it live. And then I really learned that just sitting and just being, you know, a talking head in a way, you can still have a lot of animation and connection. It's, it's very interesting. And one boon is that in some of the storytelling festivals that would have been live, we now get tellers from across the globe and they can participate. And we hear such diverse voices and it's wonderful. Even if like in India, they have to be up at two in the morning or we have to be up and it's just broadened the voices. And I, I agree with Vicki and I wish we could do a hybrid that we can keep some of the um, opportunities for people who are in different time zones and different places to attend and appreciate what we're doing. So I applaud all those technical people who are being able to do this and, and broadcast us and control it. So bravo. That's great. Thanks. Um, Chris, do you have anything to add? I can unmute. Oh, you, you're yeah. back. You know how to, okay, good. Yeah. Sorry. I can see the screen. I don't know what happened, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm really comfortable with, with uh, because I've done a lot of video work. So for me, it's very comfortable to do this um, whether there's a live audience or not. Um, but it's, it's always much more fun when you have a live audience because you do get the feeling. I mean, you you know, you begin to tell something and your story can even change when you, there's a live audience because it, you start feeding off of each other. And, you know, I have to admit, I miss that terribly, terribly, terribly. But this has still been wonderful. Um, this particular group I like probably of all the storytelling groups I've been on online. This is my favorite um, for a lot of reasons. But I also hope that we will keep zoom going afterwards if we can find a way to do that at the same time um and encourage some of you who are listening tonight to feel free to you know jump on the bangwang and tell stories because one of the nice things about this group i'll plug it a little bit is that uh two weeks before you tell a story you get a chance to practice that story with a small group of people so you you know you actually tell your story you get feedback and then you know it really helps you ready for the thing but um I really, the, the stories that we have to share, they are, that's how we make sense of our life. And uh, I know for my friend, Kathy sitting there, she's got some great stories and I'd love to has, hear you tell us some. So, and for all of you anyway, but yeah, I, I enjoy it, but I, there's nothing like the real audience. Well, thanks. And we're so glad that you like us. <laughs> and thanks for the plug, both for people to connect and for more stories because we, Yes, we are always happy for more of you to, to step up uh, and we'll help you in lots of ways to do that. Um, it, there's a, another couple questions that actually um, I'm gonna put that are for Chris. Now that I know he can unmute mute and such again, I'm gonna ask those. 
you mentioned that that whole part where they were paying attention to the process rather than the answer, um, which I think is great. I wonder, is that how you think? Do you do that yourself a lot? Sure. Um, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I went to art school is where I, I spent my time. And so I was really lucky in the sense that what happened for us is I'd started in regular college and I was just bored out of my mind. I was just bored out of my mind. But when I switched over to art, what was so nice is, so the instructor would come in and give us a problem to solve visually. And it could be the wackiest, weird, it didn't matter, but it was some problem that we had to solve visually. And then they leave and we might have two or three weeks. We had certain criteria and limitations, whatever. But basically we had to find a way to solve that problem. And then two to three weeks later, we'd meet, we'd have, you know, a critique and everybody would share their, their results and the professors would talk, you know, it was just wonderful. And sometimes there were tears and something mostly laughter and it was wonderful. I designed my entire program basically on that. I present them with problems and with the, you know, and here are um, you know, possibilities, but here's the problem to solve and go for it. You know, and then I was just there to help them and to help them think. And that was teaching thinking skills and creativity skills and all kinds of things along the way. But, uh, you know, the, it's how, you know, it's not, it's not what we know. That's not so important. It's, it's how, you know, what, what do we do with what we know, number one? And it's, it's the ability to think, to really think and ask questions. And, you know, all we have to do is look at the world that's out there. We know that what's out there isn't working. There's too much hate. There's too much violence. There's too much, you know, fighting. There's too much anger. So what we're doing isn't working. And what we're doing is telling people, here's the right answer. Learn this, go out and do this and beat the Russians or beat the Japanese or beat the, it's just bullshit is what it is. And, you know, what we need to do is think, just think, ask questions. Um, so yeah, I'm, this, I'm doing a one person show coming up in March and the title of the show is Think You Might Be Wrong. And it's, it's my attempt to sort of help address some of this division that we have going on in our, in our world right now. Um, if we all thought we were wrong, I think we'd be doing a lot better. But when we think we're right, it's just one of the worst things that can ever happen. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's, that's what I got. Well, thank you. I loved that. And I just want to say, and you'll see later, there's a lot of notes in the chat thanking you for working with these kids. But I want to say, I think all kids should get the opportunity to do some learn, some learning, at least in that way. Because um, what you're talking about, Chris, is problems that, you know, or issues. Right. It's all, all of us could benefit from the kind of education you're talking about. It would be nice if that was prioritized and supported more because I know a lot of teachers who'd love to do more of that right. they can't right now and it's you know we say in every school it says we honor diversity and that we're you know divergent thinking etc cetera, etc cetera. but for the most part it's getting worse than it ever going back to the 50s they, they've got written pre-written curriculum with every lesson for every day for the whole year here's what you literally say they scripted it out and schools are buying that kind of crap again and it's awful it's just awful so, but good teachers find a way to make that work. They just, they're magic. They're magicians. And especially elementary teachers. I will tell you that. If you ever think that schools aren't doing well, go into an elementary classroom and watch these teachers. They're amazing. They're just amazing. So. Well, thank you for speaking for them. And we will be so excited to hear, see when your book is out and to help keep that voice 
out there. Um, Pat would like to say something before I wrap up. She wants to uh, say something about being a Zoom listener. Right. Well, one of the things that I've noticed that I really enjoy, along with uh, getting people from all over the country, not just our small community in the seacoast, is that I get to see facial expressions very specifically. And although I kind of, I mean, usually when you're watching a storyteller, you get the body action, but uh, it's really fun. You, all of you, all three storytellers tonight, very animated facially. And um, that is fun. It was enjoyable to be that up close and personal. So that's a good thing. Keep it up. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. And I'm going to uh, be closing us out now. And first, I'm going to tell you that we actually are planning on trying out a hybrid sort of model. Um, in which our thought is, well, for now, we're going to keep on Zoom because, you know, the situation isn't really resolved. Is That's silly to even say, but, you know, and we're going to do that for the winter. This is our thought. We'll winter on Zoom and then for our, like, spring, fall, you know, other times we'll, we'll um, do some in-person ones. So we're thinking it'll coincide with the bad weather anyway, when who wants to go out in January and face the slush and the extra hazards parking and all that icy hill up to the studio, and some of you know. Um, so that's what we're leaning towards. So the idea is that we'll be on Zoom through like maybe March. And then depending on where things are at in April, we'll do some in-person, but then we're gonna try some kind of hybrid. So we'll see how it all goes. And we want to keep, but we did a survey and that's what we heard from people that a lot of people like Zoom and a lot of people don't like, you know, there's, uh, so we're going to try to offer some diversity and some options. And we'll keep telling you more about that. Thanks to everyone for being with us tonight, especially our tellers, but also our live excitable audience. Yay. We are soon to move on to the backstory interview with David Frainer. He's going to speak one-on-one -on -one with Judith Heineman. But first, let, let me tell you a few things. Our next True Tales live Zoom show will be on Tuesday, October 26 at 7 p.m. The theme is Harbingers. You can register at truetaleslivenh.org. We want to hear your stories. And we encourage you to start by attending one of our monthly workshops that we do on Zoom the first Tuesday of the month, 7 to 8.30. The next one's October 5th. You'll get feedback and you get to practice telling on Zoom. And you can contact us at info at truetaleslivenh.org. Or again, you can go and register at truetaleslivenh.org online. You can watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m. And anytime as video on demand or, an, or as a podcast. Again, on our website, you can easily access all these options. Let's give some thanks to those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Bedingfield, Sam Adams, Kamisha Foley, and me.
I am Amy Antonucci. And before we move to the backstory 15 minute interview with Judith, please join us for our Zoom tradition. We have a one minute dance party, okay? John's gonna play the music. We're gonna shake off some of the Zoom cobwebs before we sit back down and listen to the great conversation that they'll have for just 15 minutes, not a lot of your time. Um, you might want to switch to gallery view and stand up. And even if you don't want to do that, at least, you know, nod your head, let us know you're still there. Okay. But a lot of us take this seriously. So get on up. John is going to play it for us. Okay. 